Hi friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and writer. And I'm Brian Luna, and I ain't the one to tell you if you have something stuck in your teeth. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me. A show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's interesting. So you are not the one. No. To tell me if no. I have something stuck in my teeth. No. But You're not that person who's going to no. come it, to a stranger. Not, not even a stranger. Like, if we know each other really, really well, I wouldn't tell you if you had anything stuck in your teeth. I don't think. Wow. Yeah. It's ain't, it ain't so my business. there's just all these people walking around with just things Skunk in their teeth. Gunk in their teeth. Especially if you eat salad in front of me, just guarantee you're walking away with funk in your teeth. <laughs> I ain't the one. This is a very close topic to what I had in mind for today. <laughs> Are you serious? So in our last episode, <laughs> we talked about the psychology of power, power. in light of the invasion, invasion. in Ukraine. Ukraine. And you're still continuing to finish my sandwiches. Oh, no. Ha! <laughs> so in this episode, uh-huh. I wanted to talk about something else that's been really popping up in light of the war, which mm-hmm. is the psychology of compassion. Oh, oh yeah. I love that. So yeah. will you risk your own discomfort to tell someone that they have something in their teeth? No. Great. And that concludes our episode on whether or not Brian Luna <laughs> well, that's not compassion. is compassion. I don't know. I, I just... Right, so usually I start with a definition, but let's, mm-hmm. let's show instead of tell. Okay. If telling people that they have something in their teeth is not your idea of compassion, what are some examples? Maybe even thinking about what's going on in Ukraine now, mm-hmm. you and I have been kind of trying to keep each other's spirits up by sharing examples of compassion that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. What are some examples that stood out to you? Um, one example that just came up to me right now is um, people in Poland at the borders were leaving strollers for incoming refugees from Ukraine. Wow. So I just thought it was really like, it was one little thing that I never would have thought of, but it means the world to someone yeah. who's coming in. Yeah. Um, and I think the idea that there are people that are risking their lives to save animals, pets yeah. that are left behind. And I know that sounds like a minor thing when you look at the global global scheme of things, but I don't. And I think that's where pa- compassion lies. It's like, wherever your passion lies, your compassion will follow, right? So yeah. um, I, I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer of compassion. It's not really preached in Texas, like growing up, like a, hmm. to a young man. Like it, it's more about like protecting your own and passion versus uh, compassion. Passion versus compassion and, and, you know, very little mercy uh, where I came from. Okay, so, so now that you've shared those beautiful examples, how mm-hmm. would you define what compassion is? Wow, I think it's, um, like you said a little bit about giving uh, a little bit of yourself to help others. Uh, you know, I said that? Tell, well, you said like, would you sacrifice something of of your oh, your, your, discomfort. your own discomfort okay. to for for the passion of others and, or to take care of others? And I think compassion is just that. It's taking care of other people at not at the risk of yourself necessarily, but like at a giving, cost. Yeah, at a cost of some kind for your whether yeah. it's time, money, or resources. Yeah, difference between compassion and empathy. Go. Empathy is being able to feel what you're feeling or, or be able to sympathize what you're feeling. Compassion is the next step of caring for you now. I think. Like taking the action. To yeah, care taking for the you. action to care you for you. You nailed it, Brian. Boom! You're like a compassion scholar. Well, you know, I, I do have a degree in um, <laughs> theater. In theater. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not the sound of me laughing at theater degrees. Um, so, right. Like you can be kind of like a uh, an armchair empathizer, but mm-hmm. you can't be an armchair compassion Mm-mm. giver, right? Yeah. It, it has this action-oriented yeah. element to it. So one of the big debates in the psychology and even philosophy world is whether compassion is something taught. Like you said, in Texas, it wasn't taught and maybe even the opposite was taught or is it innate? 
So yeah. I'm curious to hear from you because I hear stories from your family about what a sweet, cute kid you were. Do you remember from being my family? From your family, my family. when yeah. you're not around? Uh-huh. Yeah, my family. These stories uh-huh. can only be told in secret because so they haven't they... shared those with me. So I'm interested. I'd be interested to hear some of those stories. <laughs> They're very focused on keeping your ego in check. Yes, we so, all are. So thinking about it's a really it's a team effort. It's the power thing. We go back to having like unhype men. I mean, my all of our family is unhype people. Unhype us. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you ever want to feel worse about yourself, like you're starting to feel too good, talk to our families. Oh, absolutely. I remember when uh, when I booked my first uh, commercial. Um, I went home and I was so excited. And the first thing my cousin Rick said was like, "Hey, movie star!" And I was like, oh. "But he didn't say." But it was, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, "Hey, movie star!" It was like, "Hey, movie, hey, big time!" And I was like, "Oh, you know, that hurt." I was like, you know, just felt okay. like everything. Yeah, sorry. So, but that's that's related to the last episode, which is and great. This one, where lack of compassion. Yes, lack of compassion. Great. <laughs> um, but coming back to this episode. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Can you share an example of a, a time you expressed compassion when you were a little kid? Do you remember that? Hmm. Something like that at all? Um, yeah, I, I do. I remember I was in the fifth grade and my best friend, Mary, actually I was in fourth grade going into the fifth grade. And I'm so glad you corrected that. Yeah, because it's very important because yeah. that, that little detail is going to change. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Mary was my best friend and she meant the world to me. Feelings weren't really something I was comfortable with at that time, you know, like any kind of like uh, dealing with any kind of heavy things or something like that. And plus, I was really young and we didn't really talk about stuff like that in our family um, at that point. Anything. So she knocked on my door one day and she was crying. And Mary was like the toughest kid in our school, I would think. Like Mary was was tough. Right, a quick example of her toughness. She would punch you in the face if you would be mean to me. So she would like, if someone were to like, even before I could even like muster up the anger to get upset, there would already be knuckles in teeth, and uh, the other person be like, "I'm sorry, Mary." And I was like, "Why are they apologizing, Mary?" (laughs) I don't. I'm not going to complain to Mary, but I was like, "That's weird." Because so Mary was tough. A good sense of Mary. Yes, tough. Um, Jeans every day. That kind of tough. You know. Mm -hmm. So. One day she knocked on the door and, and, and um, I answered the door and, and she was crying and that, that was like a huge, that scared me already. And like fear was a big thing for me. Like um, I didn't really know how to process it all the time. So she told me her dad died mm-hmm. and um, I didn't know what to do. So I closed the door. I was like, hold on. And I closed the door and I, and I sat inside my, in my apartment while she was right outside and mom came to me and she goes, what's wrong? And I was like sort of crying almost myself. And I said, Mary's dad just died. And she goes, where is she? And I go, she's outside. And my mom goes, go to her. And that's all she said. She didn't tell me to go fix it. She didn't tell me. To, and I didn't know what to do. Hmm. And all I wanted to do was go back into my room, play with my GI Joes and until Mary's better then she can come over and play. But I opened the door terrified like terrified because I didn't know what to do for the toughest, bravest person I knew. And all I could do was be there and bring her in the house and in our apartment. And I just sat there and she didn't know what to do. And, and, and we just talked, you know, like we just sat there and she came to me. And so that was like, 
I say compassion because at the cost of me feeling yeah, extremely that, uncomfortable. That's terrifying. Even and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. Yeah. And my mom lost. let me handle, like she was, I watched her. She gave Mary a hug, you know, called her Miha and everything. And then walked away for a little bit and let me and her sit there, which I was like, oh, this is, this is really hard. Like, yeah. so, um, that was the, that, as a kid, I remember like making the choice to not, go away yeah. and stay in the pocket there. That's so that beautiful, was, man. Yeah. That's really beautiful. So researchers have actually studied compassion in even younger kids. You said fifth grade. No, I'm sorry. Fourth, fourth grade. grade. Yeah, yeah. Fourth let's, grade. let's be clear. Right, I, don't, be I, don't want, I don't want any rumors starting. <laughs> so researchers have actually studied <laughs> compassion in kids as young as six months old. Can I share with you some of the... Yeah, I want to know what stuff? a six-month-old is, how they're more compassionate than me. That's bullshit. <laughs> you but need go a ahead. pep talk from your mom. <laughs> um, so you can't ask infants, you know, how are you feeling... Yeah. So the way that researchers study infant feelings, so to speak, is by looking at pupil diameters. Hmm. So when our pupils dilate, it means that we're paying attention to something. And hmm. that's one of the ways you can kind of get inside the head of an infant oh, wow. to understand, or, or anyone else, to understand what is calling to them. What are they paying attention to? What's making them process something? So when they take the infant's eyes out to measure them, <laughs> what... <laughs> <laughs> Love science, baby. I love science it. Is science great. is bananas. Yeah. Ugh. It's all, you know, we're good because we have all those eyeballs, but in exchange, yeah. we understand. We understand six month old compassion. Can be compassionate. So, for example, Elena Gengu and team found that when six month olds watched videos with their eyeballs still in, they're just doing <laughs> um, eye tracking. Okay. They monitor their eyeballs on a video screen. Yeah, so like where they're what they're watching, yeah. what they're paying so attention to. So you don't to. need to remove the eyeballs. No, just not in this, not yet. In, in case anyone wants to try this experiment at home. <laughs> so they watch videos of babies that were just neutral. Okay. They watch videos of happy babies, and they watched videos of babies that were upset. So when they saw... These just neutral babies just hanging out, feeling nothing, their pupils hardly dilated. Okay. When they saw happy babies, their pupils dilated a bunch. And when they saw babies that were upset, they really, really dilated. So the babies are watching videos of babies. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And so they're monitoring the eyeballs yeah. of the babies watching the other babies. Yeah. And so even from this very young age, you can tell that babies are really attending to these especially negative emotions, positive emotions emotions too, but especially negative emotions. Hmm. But then if you look at what they actually do, you start to see that once they have some ability to actually take action. So psychologist Celia Brownwell did a literature review, which is basically like a compilation of a whole bunch of studies to yeah. notice patterns across different researchers. And uh, what she found is that young kids don't just react to other people's emotions. They have the urge to act on them as well. So kids between the ages of 12 and 24 months, there are different studies that show they have a tendency to help, to comfort, to share, mm. and to cooperate, even if they're not told by an adult to do so. Wow. In a recent study by Rodolfo Cortez Baragan and team, researchers found that babies were willing to share food even when they were hungry. Which I don't know if you would, you do. would do that. I don't you know wouldn't. if you would. No, do. you wouldn't, you wouldn't do. do that. Pizza, I wouldn't. But <laughs> most just, food, I would. You have a whole for years now. You've been buying oh, yes, two <laughs> cartons of fries because I don't know. Ten years ago, I made the horrendous decision to take a few French okay. fries from your French. That's fry not what carton. happened. That's not what happened. I have a fry per bite ratio of my burger. So like. I have to have two fries for every bite of my burger. I did not know this. You, when you ate my fries, I ran out of resources. 
when I asked you, do you want your own fries? I, I do not want, I don't want any fries. Get those greasy things out of my face until they're in my hand, then nom, 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 right? So <laughs> yes, I, I was upset because I was like, I gave you the opportunity. Yeah. Now you've messed up my whole ratio. My burger tastes like garbage now wow. because I don't have that fry thing. I didn't know about the ratio. Well, you should have known. But I now, no matter how many times I tell you you don't want fries, you will never trust me nope. again, I don't think, nope. for the rest of our lives. Ever. And always Ever there will be extra fries. And the more delicious the fries. So like the, if we go to a place that has delicious... You're gonna get more fries, like you, you, you just so add, you don't have to share. Just so I don't have to share. Okay, but I don't think you'd share your resources. Me? Yeah, your food. Yeah. First of I'm all, like, you, what you eat is pretty gross right a lot of times because uh, that's like my my thing. I share my. I love sharing my food. Hmm. I like follow you around the house asking if you want some of my food. This could be true. I could be very wrong here, but yeah, we'll, have to, like we'll have to go back and check. The, we'll have to go back and check the records. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, I would give up my food. It's just like when you grew up with with older siblings and they take your stuff. Yes, I have I'm very those. protective of my oh, yeah. of my food. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm not that. I'm not. I think we talked about it in the podcast. I'm not one of those people that when you go to dinner with me. I'm gonna be like, hey, you gotta try my thing. You gotta. No, you no are not I one of don't. Those I I eat my food, <laughs> and if you say, oh, that looks good, I'm gonna be like, yes, it does look good. Okay. And I'm never gonna be like, so, would you like to try some, Robin or whoever? I'm like, it's not gonna happen. Well, you gotta name names. Hey, I'm gonna name names. So here's what here's what Bragan and team did in their research. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I found kind of fun about the study is that they didn't just study kids; they also studied hungry kids. So they told <laughs> parents not to feed their kids. <laughs> So they showed kids a snack (laughs) and then they pretended to accidentally drop the snack. And in one version of this, they just dropped it and did nothing. In the other version of this, they tried to get the snack but couldn't reach it. And they were trying to see what would happen. God, how long do they keep these kids hungry? (laughs) She's like days? I actually found a a quick video of this and I'm just going to show it to you. It's a strawberry. See the strawberry. Oh. All right. That kid didn't look hungry. <laughs> Wait, can you just describe what you saw? <laughs> so there was this guy. First of all, he was like, who wants a strawberry? Into a little kid who's like maybe one. And um, I don't know. So that, that if I was like that one year old, I'd be like, I'm not taking anything from this guy, but whatever. He's a little creepy. Uh, yeah. When I was a kid, when I was that age, I didn't trust anyone with glasses and, and like a collared shirt. So <laughs> I he, don't think you so still he reaches, trust people No, with I would never. Not if, you, if you're wearing both, no. So they're sitting on two and two, uh, they're sitting on either side of a table. And the guy's like, ooh, I just dropped here. You know, talking like the little kid got hit in the head or something. <laughs> and so then he reaches over to give the strawberry to the little kid and he drops it in like a, like a pan next to the kid. Yeah. And the little kid picks it up. And he's like, uh-oh. He picks it up and he hands it back to the... I think he's going to hand it back to the yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. So he hands it back. it back to the guy. Yeah. So... So that's how it looks. Yeah. So do you think you would have helped the guy? I or don't know. Had you eaten his strawberry? I mean, he was giving me the strawberry, right? Well, he was just like, this is a strawberry. Look at the strawberry. Okay, well then he was taunting me with the strawberry. Because <laughs> if he's waving it in my face and drops it, I'm like... Hey, Holmes, that's my strawberry. Sorry. Hey, you you came across the table. I didn't reach over to you and grab it, pull it out of your hand. No. You reached over and you dropped You're it. You're saying you wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have mugged him for the strawberry. I wouldn't have mugged him for the strawberry. But, but if he's gonna, him. yeah. But I, I was raised. If you ever taunt anybody with food, <laughs> and that food drops out of your hand, that's their food. That food's gone. Yeah. So I was raised. This is literally my mother since I was a child to this day. <laughs> she will insist that every piece of fruit or vegetable that's out there, people have peed and pooed and coughed on it. I don't know if it's different people. I don't know if it's all happening at the same time. So I personally would never take a strawberry from a stranger who then drops it into a pan. Because super gross. But yeah. anyway. Your mom washes oranges before she peels them. I it's the most amazing oranges. thing I've ever seen in my life. I do think you should wash, or, most, wash oranges for the for It's the, the most amazing thing. Anyway. Anyway. But these So you, children, wouldn't have ta- you wouldn't have taken the strawberry. I would have given it back. I think as a kid, you would have eaten it. Oh my goodness, no. Yeah. Heavens no. You love strawberries. No, not other people's strawberries. I don't know. <laughs> but it looked like he was giving it to the kid. Well, anyway, what they found is that even when these kids were hungry, if the adult didn't show that they were struggling to get the strawberry, mm-hmm. they didn't do anything. But if the adult looked like they were trying to reach their strawberry, yeah. then the kids helped. Yeah. So at this very, very early age, even with this, I think, kind of, Slightly annoying researcher, no offense, but mm. I also don't think I would have appreciated being spoken to that way. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, man, what's wrong with your voice? Just talk to me like a man. These super young kids were willing to help. Psychologist Lara Aknan and team actually found that before the age of two, toddlers felt happier when giving treats to others than receiving treats themselves. Oh, wow, that's cool. And this is most fascinating. They felt happiest when doing costly giving. In other words, like sharing a stash of their own treats. Yeah. Like sharing their own fries versus sharing from fries that didn't belong to them. Yeah. That was me low-key judging. I hear you. Okay, got it, got it. No, I'm with you. Oh, please. Like, that was not low-key, first of all. (laughs) Can you relate to that kind of giving? Where, like, giving something that you own or that costs you something actually feels better? Every person who comes in here, if they have, uh, if they love comic books or they have someone in their family who loves comic books, yeah. I always share my stash from right. my private collection. I'll say, oh, your son loves Iron Man or whatever. Here, check this out. It's one of the best Iron Man stories I have. I was always yeah. so shocked by that because you love your comics. Yeah. Yeah. And you could easily go online and buy them a comic book. Mm-hmm. What is it that makes you want to give from your own kind of like beloved... Is that how you say that? Beloved? Beloved. Loved? Beloved, beloved, cherished, cherished possessions. possessions. Yeah. I don't know. It feels good. It feels like it feels because going and buying one, there's like this whole waiting period, and oh, I forgot about. It. But so in that laziness? moment, no, 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 no. It's like in that moment, like we're both sharing this thing. Oh, I love, I love uh, Doctor Strange or whoever, you know. And I'm like, oh, then you should read this just to show that, like, I, like these stories mean something to me too. You know, like everything in my collection means something, so I want to share that. So, so remember last in our last episode, we talked about Datcher Keltner, who studies power. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out he also studies compassion. This is the guy with all the different teams. Yeah. Yeah. Of no, course he does. No, no that yeah. wasn't. No, that was a different guy. I that think was Galinsky. It, well, Galinsky, Keltner. It seems like they all just want to get their names <laughs> in the paper. So let's talk about Keltner. So Keltner coined the term compassionate instinct, mm-hmm. and it truly seems to describe the fact that. In humans and in other animals, this desire to help others, even if we have to go through obstacles and even if it poses some sort of threat or inconvenience to ourselves, it seems like there is no extrinsic reward for it. It's not like we're doing it for praise. It's not like we're doing it for treats. Mm -hmm. We're doing it because we have this like very natural, deep urge to do it. So I guess the question for you is, if compassion is costly and sometimes life-threatening, like people will 
risk you know, their lives literally to literally risk their lives yeah. to help a stranger. Animals do the same things. If it's so costly for the individual, why do you think compassion exists? I think compassion is talking about that social urge, right? The survival urge. Like without compassion, we can't take care of one another. We survive better in a pack. We survive mm. better by taking care of one another. You know, that's why in horror movies, it always fascinates me that they want to split up. Like, it, it, it's still to this day. It's like, it, they, they're always like, hey, you two go over there and we'll we'll go die over here. You two go die over there. <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, let's just stay in the same goddamn room. And yeah. then that that's, so I think it's the same thing. If you see someone struggling, that weakens the pack, that weakens the thing. So you got to help them. Who was it that, was it elephants or giraffes that will circle their hurt? Uh, when, when when predators come, oh, wow. they they just form like a like a stampede yeah, around there. Birds their do this. Squirrels. We see it here. So the other day, there were a bunch of uh, gulls in our neighborhood, and we also have bald eagles. And I saw a bunch of birds, like these white gulls, chasing off a bald eagle because wow. he was he or she was swooping in and trying to pick off one of those one of the birds. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's compassionate. It's It'd be easy just to let them take one and everyone else flies away. Right. But they didn't do that. They risked their own lives yeah. to, to so do this. So here's what I find so interesting. You know the, the term survival of the fittest? Mm-hmm. And it's often attributed to Darwin? Sure. Darwin didn't even come up with that. I was taught it in school. It's like a key yeah. mechanism of evolution. Turns out he never used that term. That term came from Herbert Spencer. Oh, Herbert Spencer. <laughs> Just do it. Survive. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. fittest. That's like on the other shoe. <laughs> so Herbert Spencer was a leader in the social Darwinism movement. Those were like the eugenics people. Uh, oh, and yeah, so real bad that that was the one that stuck That's around. That's the one that stuck around. Meanwhile, yeah. Darwin's like, yo, I didn't see any of that. Yeah. And so what? how scientists who study Darwin describe his theory is survival of the kindest. Because what Darwin focused on isn't individual survival, but species level yeah. survival. So, for example, he wrote, those communities, which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members, would flourish best. Hmm. And he actually wrote that he believed that the most powerful form of compassion extended beyond humans and to all other living beings. Hmm. Because it's not just like there's competition between species. There's cooperation and reliance on other species. I wonder why that that is why rats have flourished so much. Yeah, they can have thousands of babies a year, but... They're also they also work together in these huge colonies. Um, I saw that in Ratatouille. <laughs> but they also like handle resources. Like it's not like the fattest rat. You know, it, it's he, they spread the wealth so that the yeah. colony survives. But humans are just we're not especially in in Western society we tend to see everything through this what's in it for me mm. lens, which is super individualistic. And that's not even the core premise of the theory of evolution. The core premise is what is best for the species, species. not what's oh, wow. best for the individual. So evolution and survival don't happen at that individual level. They, they happen at that communal level. So boo to Herbert Spence, man. What yeah. up, Herbert Spencer? You're Just whack-ass. Boo. Yeah, survival of the fittest. I bet this guy couldn't even do 10 pull-ups. He's talking about survival of the fittest. Right. Get out of here, Herbert Spencer. I bet he was the one that was like judging everyone else so that he wouldn't have to be judged. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Pull the focus off me. Yeah. Yeah. Jerk of the week. Nope. Herbert Spencer. (laughs) But can you imagine how different things would be if we were taught survival of the kindest in school? How about if we were just taught Darwinism in school? Yeah. Boom. Okay. That would be a good start. (laughs) Remix. There you go. So, okay. So compassion seems to be an emotion that allows for mutual survival and flourishing. Mm -hmm. But 
let's get selfish for a moment because gladly you know because it's me because it's you (laughs) (laughs) um what are the individual benefits of compassion from your perspective you are one of the most compassionate people i've ever met thank you very much thank you i appreciate that so what um what's uh let's let's advertise it i think for your mental health gives you that no 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 my mental like for for if i'm being compassionate my mental health Mm. um gives me that shot of uh uh what is it the Dopamine? Not dopamine, not just dopamine, oxytocin, thank you very much. Uh, Gives you those blasts of oxytocin, seeing someone smile, make someone's day, help someone out. And I'm not talking about like doing it for, you know, I see these influencers all, it drives me nuts. See these influencers all the time, they're doing this wonderful thing by giving money out and doing this thing to random people, but they have to film it. And it just drives me bananas. It's like, yeah, okay, we get it, but if you did this... Imagine if you just did this and felt that without doing it for all this other bullshit. But, um... My dad used to always tell me whenever I saw uh, someone with a, a Vietnam veteran cap on or something like that, he would always tell me to go up to them, uh, t- tell, t- them. tell them thank you, you know, or, or welcome home or, or whatever. And I was like, Dad, it's, the, it's been a long time. You know, this is in the 80s. He would tell me this. And he was like, just just go do it. Just see what happens. Like, see, see just just go do it. And he taught me that. But it didn't mean anything to me. I mean, as a kid, I, it, it does now, you know, but like as a kid, I didn't really understand. So I just walk up and I say, excuse me. I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, your hat says you're this and I just want to say thank you. And they would just, it would just, it would do something. And I started realizing then at an early age, like just doing something for the people. Like what? What did you see then? How'd they I react? mean, some of them would get emotional. I mean, when we go to Blanco Cafe, which is like our, our little breakfast place that we go on the weekends, you'd see people get emotional. You'd see people like... Like get tears in their eyes? Yeah. Give me a hug. Like oh, this wow. strange kid, you know, like coming up. I could have taken a taco. They didn't know behind their back. <laughs> But they, they, they would, uh, they would, you know, the guy, guys give me a hug or the wife of, of the guy would give me a hug or the family members. And it was just like, whoa, I, I didn't, I, at the time I didn't understand it. But as you know, I got older and understand what the war was. And So that feel good feeling that you talked about mm-hmm. when you help someone or when you, when you show compassion, psychologists have a, a term for this you might've heard of called helper's high. Can you describe just like physiologically helper's high? If you just got like a hit of helper's high, what did, what does it feel like? Um, like picture yourself giving hallucinations. Away. <laughs> um, I think we're talking about a different kind of ah, <laughs> yes, yes. It's like getting that comic for the first time. Mm. So when I give that away, and can you share an example that like maybe more people could relate to? Oh, like what are the, what are the physical <laughs> so sensations, happiness. Um, sometimes a little, a little choking up, like happy tears, like happy, a uh, little shortness or choppy breath. I find it hard to look people in the eye when that happens. Like, uh, I get really like, um, not bashful, but really yeah, like, like shy, shy. And, and, uh, especially the happier they get, like it's, it's like this, you know, proportionate thing. I also get, uh, dry mouth. Um, uh, <laughs> cause it just sounds like you get like a tiny bit nervous. Yeah, like, nervous, exactly. Excited. Nervous, excited. And, um, and, and and just like like a happy you get when you're getting you get when you're actually receiving something. Yeah. It's so like if you've received like a kick ass gift like the the Sky Striker or something like that. Uh-huh. Then also relatable. The G.I. Joe Sky Striker. Yeah. Not yeah, right. There's gonna be <laughs> listeners that don't know what that means. Uh so you get that and you're just like, Oh my god, this is gonna change my life. You know, like when you're a kid and you get this amazing joy. And you I get that know. feeling when you're giving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, neurologically the helper's high lights up the same pleasure centers of our brain mm. as like 
eating a great piece of cake or receiving <laughs> a gift. <laughs> I guess that's good. I guess it. I guess that's good. That's too. my version. Yeah, of receiving I, a gift I guess I've never had that good of a piece of cake. Are you uh, kidding? We were just, just talking I mean, about that. I was just. I'm saying cake. until last year my, okay. for my birthday. You had this layered like. It was the most incredible cake I've ever seen. Seven-layered uh, rainbow cake. Yeah. So imagine eating that or receiving that G.I. Joe whatever thing that you just talked about. <gasps> Helper's high. In our brain, it's like pew, pew, pew. It's like fireworks yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Those, of those pleasure chemicals. In fact, giving often feels even better than receiving. For example... <laughs> I want to see the figures on this. <laughs> okay. I got figures. Uh, Elizabeth Dunn and team... They recruited participants. Uh-huh. They give all of them money. Half of them were randomly assigned to spend that money on themselves. Oh, cool. Don't you wish you were in that I'm just, I'm just thinking right now. I was even thinking like, how much? Where do I start? And how I much time do I have? And I think spend it by 5 p.m. that day. Oh, so please. Like, no, wait, um, what are they, 4.45? I would have been gone. I'm No problem. <laughs> so the other half got randomly assigned to spend money on others. Oh. Uh, which group would you have rather been in? <sighs> Honestly, yeah. If it was a random thing and it wasn't my money and it was like a someone else, yeah. Why do you seem so like? Uh... Because I'd want to say, oh, I'd really, I know exactly. I go to Midtown Comics, but realistically, I think <laughs> if I had the choice, but why do you seem grumpy about it? Because I'd, I'd want to. I'd want that. I'd want to go buy something for myself. But I think, truthfully, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on the. Uh, you know, we're doing this podcast, but I really do think I would. I would go and spend money on something that someone wanted like I, I usually keep an ear out when I talk to people about like and I know you do this too like uh, if someone says oh you know I've never had um, I don't know uh, a, a water bottle that keeps the water cold no matter what you know or something like that yeah, and the yeah. next thing you know you're like you'll you'll send someone in the mail like anonymously you right. know so especially if it's anonymous anonymous yeah, yeah so it turns out that no surprise the group that spent money on others so either getting a gift for someone or donating or something like that they felt significantly happier than the people who spent money on themselves and i bet you sorry but i bet you that there was less stress so mm. like if i have i have until five o'clock to buy something for myself mm, with this money like, be like oh, you're be like, oh what should, right should i should i get this or should i get this oh i don't really need and start debating but if you're getting it for someone else that's cool it's like no pressure. Yeah. I'm going to get something for someone that I they're going to love. So. Unless that person you're getting something for is Brian Luna, and then there's a lot <laughs> of pressure. A lot. Are you kidding me? You know exactly what I want at I any know. given time. I, I never. So Brian's I never... birthday's coming up in about a month. Almost at, there, guys. As, birthday month. As he's been reminding coming me. Up, y'all. Pretty much every day. Yeah, almost a, I'm a month away. <laughs> and uh, and he he has generously given me a list of his demands. I'm sorry. Uh, gift, wow. gift request, but I want to surprise you too. And it is a lot of pressure because I'm like, oh crap, am I going to do this right? Or are you going to be happy? But you're a wonderful gift recipient. Oh my God, I love getting your gifts because of the stuff I told you to get. So. <laughs> I've never, never seen someone get so excited to receive something they told me to get them. Okay, so we know compassion makes people happier. Turns out it makes them healthier too. Uh-oh. And it can even help you recover from disease faster. One explanation for this phenomenon <laughs> comes from the research of Barbara Fredrickson and team who wanted to look at the impact of different types of happiness on our gene expression. We talked gene about gene expression. Yeah. So we've got our genes and the expression of genes is basically like uh, when you sort of like flip a switch. So you might have a gene sitting around and it will either be totally dormant and nothing will happen or an experience happens and the, the gene sort of flips on. 
Or oh, sometimes shit. we have genes that are just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And if thing A happens, the gene switches on one set of reactions. And if thing B happens, it switches on another set of reactions. That's, That's what gene expression is. Wow. Okay. So it's basically how, do, how does the environment impact the behavior of our genes? Wow. Super cool. So what she and her team wanted to do was they wanted to compare people who reported experiencing hedonic happiness. That's like flying first class, buying all the comics you want, yeah, you know, yeah. eating all the best pizza. Yep. It's it's living that kind of life. Not the most expensive pizza. No, just the the best pizza. The best pizza. Let's get that clear because I don't want people. Brand to... pizza. There you go. As long as it's good, <laughs> like yeah. I don't so that's care hedon- where it's hedonic from. happiness. Yeah. It's like just living for the for your personal pleasures like real sugar dr pepper real yep. sugar big red exactly. real sugar i got you yeah yeah um and so they wanted to compare people who experienced hedonic happiness with people who reported feeling eudaimonic happiness which is the happiness that comes from feeling a sense of purpose or meaning especially when you feel like you're helping others mm-hmm. or when your life is making things better for others what they found is that the people who felt eudaimonic happiness, so not the Dr. Pepper not happiness, the Dr. Pepper. but the giving and meaning happiness. Mm, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> they had lower inflammation levels in their bodies. Hmm. So from an evolutionary perspective. Wait, wait. So the, that's the trade-off? I just have more inflammation and I'm still happy? Like inflammation my... is awful for your body. Yeah, but I can put some ice on it, take some ibuprofen, no, it's and still like have my... No, it's not your wrist is swollen. We're talking about the things that are precursors to cancers. Mm, They're the things right. that cause chronic pain. All right. Like your body, essentially from an evolutionary perspective, what happens is, and we talked about this, I think, in the popularity episode a little bit. When we feel disconnected from others, mm-hmm. our bodies, to our bodies, that's a signal that we're in danger. Mm. And so we basically physiologically go into like defense mode. And that's why they're thinking is that these people who had this eudaimonic happiness, because they felt that they were living a life of purpose, they felt connection to yeah. others. They felt like they were a part of something bigger than themselves. And that relaxes our body. That tells our body essentially that we're safe and that inflammation response doesn't doesn't kick in. And remember, we also talked about our defense mechanism against um, viral infections yeah. goes up yeah. when we feel connected That's to others. That's amazing. According to one of the researchers, Stephen Cole, lacking that sense of connection and meaning and contribution can be as damaging to our health as smoking. Wow. So, so, be, so flying first class is the same as a pack of marbles. Well, if you're flying first class and then you also like buy a ticket for someone else to fly first class. But not sit next to you. All good. <laughs> <laughs> the point is you can have hedonic happiness, yeah. but it's got to go alongside giving. So giving. you can you can, you can can take, yeah. but you got to give as well so you yeah. feel that yeah, connection. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, at the heart of it, it's do you feel a part of something? Do you feel that you are connected to something bigger than yourself? Hmm. I could see that. I'm a big t-shirt fanatic and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm very particular about the t-shirts I get. Like they don't have to have like fun slogans or anything, but I only buy a specific brand, the texture quality and everything like that. So when I have What's excess, your texture formula, uh, it's like <laughs> cotton poly blend. I know baby. what you remember when you and I first got together. Oh my gosh. Speaking of getting new gifts you didn't want. So I see this t-shirt and it had all these superheroes on it. I'm like, great. He loves t-shirts. He loves superheroes. There's so many superheroes. I bring it home and you were like, yeah. It was something a toddler would wear. It was like it had so much. And it was so like 100% much, cotton. It was 100 so cotton. It was stiff as a board. So no, no, no. So I. So anyway, my point is, is that when I have these shirts that are very rare, or you know, if they don't fit me anymore, 
um, I like to donate them, you know, because I want to see people like getting that shirt <laughs> that normally you wouldn't be able to find on eBay for like so you know, whatever. I like right, to donate you could that. Sell yeah, it. I could sell it, but I, I don't like to do that. I like to give it away because, like, imagine me as a kid who was broke, you know, and had to go to these yeah. places to shop for clothes and get laughed at and whatever. Imagine coming in and finding like these really cool. badass shirts and stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we know being compassionate makes us feel good, makes us healthier. It also makes us sexier. Yeah. yeah. So researchers Yan Zhang and team found that participants rated individuals' faces as more attractive if they were told that these people were kind. Huh? Is that why you find me as attractive as you do? No, so I think you're, I didn't know you were compassionate when I first met you. you we literally met volunteering. Yeah, but you were late. <laughs> you were very late. I was on time and you were talking when the guy was talking. Uh, the, the instructor. <laughs> I was uh, late. You were late. But we were still volunteering. Yeah, we were volunteering. That's so, how we met, y'all. We met volunteering. So cheesy. So cheese ball. But do you think that's why we found each other attractive? Because almost immediately you Well, like... I was attractive. Regard- I could have been cleaning <laughs> up there. You didn't know. I don't know. Literally people found people's facial structure better looking, more attractive, if they believe this was like a nice person. Which goes back maybe from the evolutionary psychology perspective, you want to be with someone who's going to be looking out for yeah. you and No, I could see that, yeah. I mean, because it also, being more compassionate makes you happier and you had a great laugh and you love to laugh. But these were pictures and these weren't actually compassionate people. They were just told that they were compassionate. And it changed how they perceived their faces. Interesting. So really, add something to add to your Tinder profile. Not your Tinder profile. Which hopefully no, my you. Tinder profile is locked. It's set. <laughs> it's getting mad, whatever, attention. I don't even know. <laughs> so, I don't even know, like, I was going to say likes, but I don't think it's, I don't think that's. Swipes? 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 I don't know. I don't know. I don't know we haven't been dating. We now. haven't been dating. Um, okay, so last but not least, <laughs> in case you're not convinced that compassion is awesome, right. Stephanie Brown and team even found that people who supported others lived longer. So this is what they wrote. Mortality was significantly reduced for individuals who reported providing instrumental support to friends, relatives, neighbors, and individuals who reported providing emotional support to their spouses. Receiving support had no effect on mortality once giving support was taken into consideration. Hmm. So people who... Felt supported by others, that was not a predictor of longevity. Longevity, right. But people who said that they helped others, they actually were more likely to live longer. Does this make you want to be more compassionate toward me, your spouse? Well, I'd still be living longer with you. <laughs> oh. So. Oh. Oh. Burn. Oh. So wait. So what you're saying is, if I start giving more, mm-hmm. I'll be a vampire. Mm. I mean, or vampire-like. They looked at data over a five-year period, so... Right. So those, those results deduce. aren't in. Yeah, those results aren't in. Okay, I can see that. Come back to me in 250 years. But but, but, but it's significant. Yeah. Michael Poulin and team believe that one explanation may be that helping serves as a kind of stress buffer. So they found that stress was a predictor of dying for people who hadn't been helpful the year before but stress did not predict death for people who had been helpful interesting i'm curious if what it has on the health of the brain too well i think inflammation can be a big part of it that's fascinating you know because you know after my father passed i've been thinking a lot about like so many factors contribute to alzheimer's and loneliness is loneliness seclusion uh those kind of things it really does like 
force you to separate. It forces yeah. forces you to like be like on your own, you secluded. That's bad for you. Yeah, that's bad for you. And I'm wondering with positive if there are any positive effects uh, on the brain. Yeah. Uh, for for in this case, so I um, haven't read research specifically around that, but the link between loneliness and Alzheimer's has been studied, inflammation and Alzheimer's. Yeah. So I could see those two going hand in hand. But the thing is, you can't fake it. So Sarah Conrath and team found that volunteering to help others did reduce the likelihood of dying, but only for people whose motives were to help others or feel connection to others. And it did not have that impact on people who volunteered because they said it made them feel good about themselves. Hmm. So it's it's this interesting thing where like if you genuinely feel that compassion, if yeah. you genuinely feel the desire to connect, very good for you. If you're like putting it on your resume or doing it to look or good. Or recording it. You know, like I was telling with the influencers yeah. and doing that. Yeah, and, then it and, might not actually have any benefit. If you're doing it for your brand image or yeah, something like that, yeah. sorry, not great for your longevity. Yeah. So clearly we're wired for compassion. But if that's the case, what do you think keeps people from being more compassionate more often? Because it's not exactly like we're overrun. Well, I think these. especially in the last two years, it feels like when you talk about this, when you talk about like uh, being compassionate or when you talk about anything but giving more there's always a question of resources and we saw this in during covid you know in the early days of covid when shelves were empty and yeah. they People actually fighting had over to toilet paper. fighting over toilet paper and even even like if you look at the compassion of the whole controversy of getting vaccinated or not well i'm healthy i don't need to worry and i remember one of the i, I want to say it was the texas attorney general that was saying like um when we found out that elderly people and were at risk they were saying well i think Grandma would want to risk her life for us to go shopping again, so to speak. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're just like, wow, this is a lack of compassion for someone we voted in. Show compassion and uh, and leadership for the people of of Texas where I'm from. So I think uh, it it scares people to give. um, So you're saying we're we're sort of living in this perception of lack of resources lack of resources and taking care of your own like all of a sudden the country got really really small in the last like six years people used to think like we were divided we're not divided we're like into fours and sixteenths and all these little sections and factions that um are up against each other almost like a shrinking of my in group yeah and an expanding of your out group yeah exactly and so i think i think it freaks people out to to give and not have these kind of desperate times bring out the worst in people and unfortunately they bring out the they they lock the compassion up but also you know. sometimes the best in people absolutely, absolutely. so here's an, a really interesting obstacle i thought psychologist dale miller writes about what gets in the way of compassion and one of the things that he found is that a big obstacle for adults is fear of being judged by others Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. You I could can? see that. Yeah. I was so surprised. I was like, what? Because, yeah. like, you know, there's all the like virtue signaling of I'm doing this good thing and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So, like, what can you share an example of a time yeah, you worry being, about being judged? Absolutely. Or being and judged someone else? If uh, when I go home to Texas, oftentimes, yeah, if I'm in my an old neighborhood or if I'm visiting my family in a, in a, in a rougher part of town, you know, compassion is seen as a target. You know, like, uh, yeah, weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you, you put on a, you, it looks like you're putting on airs or it looks like you're saying you're better than someone else. Oh, if, if yeah. So yeah, so there's a lot of, um, you know, unfortunately you have to kind of like know your surroundings. If I'm going to be compassionate, I got to know who's around. I got to yeah. know what, what's, what's going on. I got to know who's Because it could look like you're being flashy or Flashy. Something. Oh my gosh. My mom used to always tell me like, 
when I was a kid, we'd go downtown and I'd give money to, you know, if I got a dollar, I'd get, maybe give it to someone on the street or something like that. They'd be like, don't ever pull money out like that yeah. again, you know, or don't ever do that because like, someone's going to hit you and take it all, you know, and so you're like. It's interesting. You know, I, I also come from like generations and generations of, of scarcity, but in a very different cultural context. So like my grandmother always used to tell me that in my culture, in Ukrainian culture, when you offer something to someone, like you offer food, mm-hmm. right? You're supposed to offer it like, three four <laughs> seven times you're not supposed to ask for anything and yeah. that comes from that culture of poverty because your neighbor she used to literally talk about you know her neighbors would come and like the little kids would look in the window because they had run out of food and my grandmother was li- literally living off of like potato peels yeah and so they would never ask and then you would always have to offer and they would always have to say no mm-hmm. and there was this dance of like no, 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 take it, take it, take it. And how many times was it like unspoken? Like, kind of unspoken. And, did, and do they ever take it? So that's what, that's kind of the beauty of that dance is if you truly, truly need it, then you'll take it. Yeah. But you first have to check yeah. just how many times will they offer it? Because if you truly, truly can't afford to give it up, then yeah. you'll only offer maybe two times. That's why I, I can understand that because I remember when, when we were having tough times, you know, with my family and... It was always a big thing for my dad to have to ask someone for money. Yeah. But you could go and share your story and that person could offer. And my dad would be like, no, 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 no. And I remember us needing food that night and my dad refusing it. And it was taken off the table, so to speak, you know, and then you're just like, oh, shit, like what happened? They were... But the, so there's, yeah, I can see that. I can see on, like on a there's... lighter note, this is literally a lesson my mother taught me in how to ask for favors. If you ever want someone to install an air conditioner for you, you never ask. You just go, oh, it's so hot. And I have this air conditioner, but it's so heavy. She's done that to me. I know. It works. <gasps> yeah. 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 Anywho. So, but Dale Miller and his co-author, Rebecca Ratner, they looked at this kind of judgment of compassion in a different way, or they found something different. What they found is that people have a tendency to respond with surprise and sometimes even anger when someone goes out of their way to support a cause that doesn't benefit them directly. It's like we get suspicious when someone is like, let's say that, I don't know, maybe I'm advocating for gay rights. Mm -hmm. If I share that I have gay family members, then people are like, okay, that's fine. If I don't share that there's a personal kind of benefit for me or a personal connection for me, then mm-hmm. people are like, why are you doing that? Hmm. Have you ever felt that or, or, or noticed that? That's I don't a, know. That research I, I like couldn't really identify with. I guess uh, I'm trying to think specifically because usually when we do that, we, we, we tend to stay anonymous, you know. Uh, if you and I are donating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another interesting thing, right? Like people feel uncomfortable telling others that they are helping. And one reason could truly be that we tend to almost like police each other's compassion. For example, in another set of research that Dale Miller did, he found that people often made up self-interested excuses for why they're helping, Hmm. even though their actual motivation was not self-interested. And I wonder if this is because, back to what you were saying about scarcity, compassion really we see it as something we're supposed to give to our in-group yeah and we're not supposed to give it to our out-group yeah so if you don't understand why i'm giving to someone who seems like a member of my out-group then maybe there's like a resource guarding that happens yeah like that money could be going somewhere else uh that going to be yeah i remember you don't trust my yeah intentions there was yeah it it really is where people or people could think that oh that money could be going 
could be going somewhere else to benefit other people right, or other things. There's a better way to use the money. Yeah, I like there. There's a there's a, a comedian used to have a podcast. I, I don't know if he still does, but Jay Moore used to his thing was veterans. He gave to veterans and and we do too. You know, like a, a for because of my dad and everything. But see. You just gave. A I reason. just did, but you but, just but, gave a justification. But, uh, oh, you're right. I absolutely did. I did. Um, but anyway, so so his thing was, I can't understand why people give to animals. Mm. You know, like step. Let me step over this homeless veteran. This is his his word. Let me step over this homeless veteran to take care of this puppy. And you know, it used to make me feel like holy shit. Like I I we give to animals. Like because that's one of my passions. Is like. Well, then you don't have to explain. Oh, right, right. I don't have to say explain anything. <laughs> but but I, I immediately when I said that, I started thinking of Huckleberry. Yeah. You know, I started thinking of like why we do what we do. And I was like, well, we don't have to have a reason why, but I understand having to make one up or yeah. having to justify what you do and why but you give and where we're you do it. having this conversation, it feels more real to me. Because like, yeah, whenever we do support, it's like, oh, I'm from this place or I mm-hmm. care about this because my pig, goat, whatever, had such a personal impact yeah, on yeah. me. So like, why, why do we do that? That's so interesting. Let's not give reasons anymore. No, I don't think we should. I don't think we should. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. So when... We gave to the Allen Forney Center, which is an organization to help homeless LGBTQ teens. It really spoke to me for, for being like such an outsider, having nowhere to go, feeling like it really, it really spoke to me. But I was wondering like how that was going to be perceived for me giving to teens. And I didn't want it to feel creepy. I didn't want it to feel, oh do you gosh, know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So I, I was like, oh my God, like I don't want. I don't think I would have any- thought of that for myself. Right, but but I I did because I didn't want anything to like be misconstrued or, or or something. But you're always worried that you'll come across as creepy. Right, but but that's the thing is is because I have oh, to justify so, so much. Yeah, I mean I love these examples you're bringing up because it kind of colors the fact that giving, while so innate, so natural, so obviously important, there are all of these kind of social barriers to it. And one of the other things is just now. Sorry, just hit me. We're talking about giving to veterans my whole thing is giving to veterans and not wanting to be seen as someone who supports war you know or something like you know like like right. the, the uh because you, you always hear this thing oh you support the military complex and well, no i support the people like my father who want this uh, resources and, and just and people don't, who are struggling yeah i just i see anybody struggling and i want to put out there what we can you know so yeah share your comics yeah so before we wrap up, yes, what are some ways we can make compassion easier and a little more common? Well, um, <laughs> the easiest way is to do it is to get out there and just no excuses. And and maybe oh, what would be great is to find something outside of your like yard, group. yeah, your typical group, and find mm. a place that needs help. I mean, you're right. It's like it's addicting in the best sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, it does trigger that helper's high and you do it a little bit and then you're you're sort of like oh that was awesome i want to do it more yeah and i'm not talking about finances all the time like i'm not if you if you're good with tools um go and help uh, a a home or or organization that needs to to rebuild or patch things up whatever your time is um if you repair uh hvacs like my cousin does like go and and Donate your time to to a place that yeah, time, knowledge, yeah, like emotion. Honestly, How, taking the time to listen to someone, to talk to someone, yeah. to reach out, and it doesn't have to be someone explicitly in need. It could be your neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be a friend. One of the things that I that just hit me recently that I saw that actually choked me up. Two snowstorms ago, hit the Midwest uh, really hard, 
and a coach posted for the daily workout today. There is no workout. And he got his team, his players to instead go shovel. Um, oh, uh, like your workout today is to go find an elderly person or uh, someone who cannot shovel themselves and shovel their, their sidewalk so cool. uh, from this time to this time. That's your that's your workout so today. Cool. And it child was just, labor. The, uh, <laughs> but, that's the kind of child labor I can give. That's what that. I, that's the kind of child labor I can give you, too. But it just it's one of those compassionate yeah. things. Like do what you can. Yeah. You know that's what you can yeah, do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what research reveals is that compassion. Again, remember it's it's innate and it tends to flow more easily when we release this like us versus them divide. Mm-hmm. So the more you can expand your sense of who's in your in group, yeah. Whether that's other people or other living beings, the less you even have to work at being compassionate, the more that desire to take care of others just naturally pops up. Also, various researchers such as Sendry Hutchardson, James Gross, Tanya Singer, who spells her name like I do. There you go, yeah. Tania. And uh, and Sheetha already have also found that you can kickstart your brain's compassion urge with meditation, regardless mm. of what kind of meditation you do. So it's almost like if you can hone your attention muscle and reduce some of that like noise that tends to happen yeah. in our brains that make us makes us very us focused as in I focused. Yeah. It naturally unblocks our attentiveness to others and to help others become more compassionate. Here's what's tricky about what you said earlier about influencers kind of bragging about yeah, yeah, how they're yeah. helping. So it turns out that compassion is contagious. For example, researchers James Fowler and Nicholas Christakis found that observing generosity made people more generous. Hmm. They also found observing greed made people more greedy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a part of the Way research. to go both sides. Way to go. <laughs> but basically our orientation toward others is contagious. Yeah. So when you choose to be compassionate out loud, so to speak, it can catalyze compassion in others. But how do you do it in a way where people aren't like, oh, they're just doing it for Instagram likes? Well, do it for yourself. Anonymity helps. But um, then other people don't know that it's happening. Wear a mask. <laughs> wear a mask. Spider-Man wears a mask. Captain America wears a half mask. Batman wears a half mask. Oh, that'd be really cool. Um, like like a, just... Like well, a I mean, compassion vigilante. Yeah, or, or, or like you could do it so that you don't want to be seen, but like show the act. You know, and do it from a first from a for POV. There's so many things, but uh, no, I mean, you just gotta be creative. If you if you don't want to do it for virtual signaling, um, take the focus off of you, put it on who you're helping, yeah, and and why you're helping. It's take like the focus off of you. We pay for people behind us in line and mm-hmm. then try to drive away really quickly. We always get yeah, because but our order always takes long. I know, and then it's so, really awkward. So we're sitting there like a couple of doofuses. We're trying to hide our faces, but yeah, like try to just keep the focus on the other person. And I think that the intentions shine through. And at the end of the day, even if you are going to virtue signal, maybe that's fine as long as you're still helping someone. Yeah. I mean, as long as it's getting people to go out there and do it. Yeah. And I think also for me, at least it, it feels good to reconnect with the fact that being there for others is the most natural thing we can do as mm-hmm. living beings. And yeah. it's a way to kind of enjoy being alive is to feel that connection yeah. with others. And you know, what would be super compassionate of our listeners, Brian. Speak to me. I feel like it would be really kind and generous if they took the time right now to rate <laughs> this show 
and to leave a review because that'll make us feel great and we love hearing from you. Because I'm shameless. There you go. <laughs> and and look for opportunities, as Brian said, to donate your time, money, knowledge. Like literally call up someone who you think could use, or I don't know if people call anymore, text someone that you think can use a little bit of support in their lives right now. All Absolutely. of that is a form of connection, compassion, all of that makes the world a better place, makes our lives better. And as always, thank you for listening to Talk Psych to Me. It was a strawberry.